to many people, including myself. Uh, and you made this outstanding film recently. And I think what's great about the film is that it, uh, it doesn't, it's not, when we talk about camera person, we're not talking about a particular film per se, we're talking also about Kirsten Johnson, but we're talking about the world today, about the entire question of filmmaking, what documentary is, the question of filmmakers and our relationship towards the world and how we experience the world and how the world experiences us, mm. actually. Mm. And then also we're talking about trying to articulate who we are through film. I think that if, uh, can I ask who, who did watch Camera Person uh, in the audience or already? Mm. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, if you didn't, you should, but maybe we will intrigue you more. Uh, camera Person is a film that is by all means larger than life. And then I look at that after I just listen, hear myself saying this and I think... Nonsense. No, <laughs> because it's your life. Yeah. So you had a larger than life life. Yeah, but it's still a life. <laughs> KJ worked over some years as a camera person. She filmed films with many filmmakers in different countries. Her entire filmography is, in a way, a very special uh, narration or, or uh, um, storytelling of the history of the world today as much as of her own history. Uh, making a film that looks back at such a a body of work and hence at the world and at yourself and your relationship with it um, seems to be an obvious thing for a camera person. Mm. When you made it, when you started making this film, the first thing that comes to mind was like, or that came to mind was like, why didn't anyone do this before? Mm. Well, I can promise you there are a lot of camera people who tell me that, but uh, there actually are camera people who've done this before, and there are, there are many who have done it before. Who, who made a film? Yeah, 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 I mean, who, who look back at their footage. I mean, I keep, okay. but yeah, I mean, I keep finding them, and, and I think that's one of the sort of things that we encounter with cinema always, is that many things have happened before us that have been forgotten, um, that we look back at and we find again. Um, there are quite a few, actually, camera people who made This is outstanding that at a certain moment in history you came and did this look back at your mm. own eyes and what you saw and what you recorded, and then you said, I'm going to tell you my own mm. version of what happened, mm. what I witnessed, which is a mixture of terribly painful reality of the world today. Yeah. Um, and... I, I, something else, which is very dearly uh, the joy of life. Yeah, I just want to tell you, I was just in Poland and I met this Turkish guy um, who says he, he doesn't classify films by um, genres, but by types of music. And he looked at me and he said, camera person is death metal. <laughs> <laughs> and then he pulled up his shirt and he had a giant tattoo of death across his stomach. And I was like, yes! <laughs> To open the, the, uh, the discussion further, I, I would like to show a clip, our first clip of the film, sure. um, to, to help us tackle our very broad uh, subject. Let's do it.
here's how I look at this. Okay. I think that this is the captive person, the hunter, the patient viewer of the world, who is traditionally, as part of the uh, conventional uh, standard filmmaking process, mm -hmm. always deleted out of the shot. So it's very obvious, the first minute you put this on the timeline to make a film, what the editor first does is to take out the and then to delete the last bit of the clip. Which makes sense in the standard traditional form. But we, as, as viewers or as filmmakers, we forget that what we did was particularly to cancel the camera person. And the sound, yes, yes. And what you did in your film now is that you showed us the entire clip saying, guess what? Somebody had to cough. Mm -hmm. And then the camera was shaking. Mm -hmm. And that thunder took somebody's breath away. Mm -hmm. And it has, a, it has a voice when it takes your breath away. Mm -hmm. So it suddenly reminded me, and maybe many others watching the film, at least filmmakers, that we really forget the role the soul of the camera person being put into this. I feel you are standing up for camera persons everywhere with this statement. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, there's a part of me that sort of, this is an I am Spartacus, uh, you know, moment of cinema for me in terms of all of us who are there. And I know in this conversation we will have fun because Oral uh, wants me to say I, and I will keep pushing back and saying the we, you're like, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm playing work. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I de it definitely feels to me like um, there are so many of us who are there and who are present. And it's not even that an editor has to remove us. It's that we are asked to remove ourselves to a great extent um, doing the work. I mean, Nels Bengerder, who is here, the fabulous editor of the film, knows we went through a lot of footage looking for me and it was hard to find me. I actually don't talk very much on the tracks and I try not to sneeze and I try not to shake the camera and I try not to laugh and I try to contain everything that I'm feeling while I'm working inside of my body and sometimes I can't. But that's, I feel like I'm failing when that happens because I'm not supposed to reveal. If, what is it yeah. that snakes in from you? Well, I mean, How I think, can you describe this? I mean, I think that's the revelation of this film for us. I mean, I don't think that we knew early on that there would be as much evidence of me as there is. And that's very, I mean, that became part of the reason why I wanted to keep looking at footage because I could find, you know, moments of myself I had completely forgotten. So that, you know, sort of whatever is the diary of yourself in time actually exists in the way that you have filmed things. Um, and then I also think, you know, all of us struggle with this is sort of, you know, what is our eye? How do we see the world? Can we change the way we see the world? Uh, and that striving to understand who other people are. Is there a way to see the way they see? But in fact, I, th I think this, this challenge is very strange, this intermingling. Um, when, you know, I'm a mom, and one of I, you keep learning crazy things around the biology of um, how things work. But one of the things that totally blew me away is that it, you know your part of your baby's cells go into your brain, so your brain is literally changed by their presence in your body. So now I am not just myself, but I'm also Viva and Felix too. Um, so and I. I'm like, how is that changing how my, how has that changed how my brain actually works and how I actually see? Um, and I wonder about that with the people I have filmed. How does knowing you change the way I see? And I, I believe that it does. Um, and I believe there's evidence of that in the footage. I'm, I'm gonna 
ask you a little bit about this evidence because yeah. it's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, I just, when you talk about the children, yeah. female feelings, and how they change you, and then I have to automatically ask you about all of this big body of work, all of these films, all of this pain of the ugly yeah. that you have documented, that you have witnessed and approached with all of your feelings, with all of your joy of going to Sana'a, Yemen, I cannot express, like one of the coolest cities in the world, the most insanely great architecture, the most delicious food, the, like, you know, on and on and on, and I sort of feel like that, that thing of when you travel and you get to a place and you're like, oh, everything I thought I would think about this place is not true, there's some other set of truths here, and that, you know, I think, yes, there are scars, but there's also this whole sort of delicious discovery, uh, curiosity, joy that was always happening, which is part of why, you know, sort of, I really enjoy life, and I really enjoy people, and, and so that has been the motivation in so many ways, and then sort of wanting to recognize what people are experiencing then has led me to find, oh yeah, it turns out there's a lot of violence in the world. It turns out, you know, suffering comes in all forms and doesn't seem to go away very easily. All of those things get discovered along the way. But I think for me, a lot of it is like, I want to go to that place. Especially when I've heard, I think, that it's the worst place. Because that's never been true for me. All of the worst places have all been so I, you know, like I'm like, oh, show me what the show me the worst, because I know that's not what it is. Does, do I feel some cynicism in this? None. No. No, no. I mean, seriously, like you can't tell. I mean, because there are people everywhere, and you know, honestly, you know, when people are in really rough situations, they are hilarious. I mean, and I, I, I think that this is one of the, you know, when something reaches a, a surreal pitch of, we have a dictator in Libya who's not, who's refusing music, culture, uh, you know, who's re refusing all of these things, then people get very funny. Very true. Right? And, you know, it's like, I, I, I have this memory of being in Uganda and calling down to see if um, my clothes were ready, and the guy at the desk is like, you know, I'm still holding them because I've been trying them on all on. And, <laughs> and, and you're just like, yes. Like, I, you know, you, you, like, you love it so much. It's so good. Um, so that's the kind of thing I live for. <laughs> She sees everything around music. 
falling backwards into certain kinds of blindness has ended up being safe or safer for me than I expected. Other times, like I've definitely you know, stepped in a hole and <laughs> tripped rather violently. Um, but so, so to go back to this idea of the sort of the philosopher, you know, um, I do think my encounter with Derrida, it was one of my first very real filming experiences. And I was trying to talk through the whole thing and he was refusing that and pushing back on it all the time. And um, I really felt like, retrospectively, I feel like he knew that I needed to learn to speak visually. And that's why he kept sort of saying, no words, please. And you know, and I've told this story many times, but he literally <coughs> said, Kirsten may only film me in my home if she does not speak. Which was like, you know, at the time was just felt like this, you know, incredibly arrogant, intimidating man telling me to shut up. That's what it felt like. But in fact, what happened was it opened up all of this space for me to forget words and try to think about what was the language of cinema. I must mention that, it's, that Jack did it alone to only two persons in the past 40 years to film them at home. Yeah. So you are one of them. <laughs> Fundamentally, part of it has to do with my religious upbringing. So I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist in the United States, and um, you know, for those of you who've never heard of it, it's an American-created religion that I actually believe was created by a woman who uh, was mixed race, but who was passing as white, um, and she created this religion that sort of rainbow world. Jesus is coming again. We follow Old Testament, uh, you know rules, so in many ways we have odd things in common with Judaism, so we go to church on Saturday, it's called the Sabbath, so it's this very strange, but then of course the apocalypse is, is going to come and we will have the mark of the beast on us, and it's this whole very elaborate thing, but Seventh-day Adventists are missionaries, and they believe in education and healthcare. And so in my childhood, I watched, I, I was not allowed to watch films, but what I saw in the church basement were slides of missionaries. And so I saw the world sort of in, in images of it as it was, and then you would see the transformation after the missionaries had been there. So there would be these incredible photos. I mean, I, I remember there's this terrible, crazy song where there's this beautiful girl from somewhere, you know, some place in Asia and she has all these little pennies that are attached by strings in her ears and necklace and it's like this fashion, like fabulous fashion. She looks so great. And then there's this incredible song that this you know Christian song is like she had dirty little pennies in her ears and dirty little pennies in her nose and, and then there's an image of her transformed by the missionaries and she's wearing this hideously plain dress. All of the pennies are gone and her hair has been brushed in a certain kind of way. And I just remember looking at it and thinking, you know, this incredible dissonance because I believed. I believed that the right thing to do was to tell her the good news about Jesus. But I was like, oh, I loved her pennies. Why did they take her pennies away? You know, like, so, so, so that went on and on and on through my childhood. Right, I would have evidence of what was attractive and interesting, and you know, in the, you know, 
I want to be like, I want to wear panties like that. And then boom, to the like khaki pants and the shirt and the deadness of being transformed by this good. I, I'm going to ask your permission to continue in the eye just once again. Yeah. And then we switch because yeah, yeah, yeah. this is fascinating. Yeah. It's, uh, it's you. It's mm. your personal story, but it, I think it's truly, it, it, it opens up to the meaning of film and how we, we go into it, how we see the world. Uh, it's very uh, rare that an American uh, filmmaker or cinematographer or camera person end up studying across the Atlantic in France. You studied in La Fenice, mm -hmm. which is the most prestigious, celebrated French film institute uh, for, for the past few decades. Uh, can you tell us something about this very special mixture of who you are cinematographically? Because we feel it in the film. We feel that in this film, we're not talking about one clear-cut school or approach. We're talking about someone who is trying to digest the world of film wider than one school or one method. How did you end up in La Fenice? Well, you know that makes me really happy that you say that because you know I, I, I sort of I wanted. I, I want to express this multiplicity that I feel in myself. Um, it really started um, in Senegal, um, and and Senegal was my connection to the francophone world. But Do you I notice mean, this is a very abs absurd answer? Of course it how is. Did an American, how did <laughs> an American from Wyoming study in Paris? Yeah, yeah. Well, it started in Senegal. Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, every good story must go its way. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think, what's, I think what's so deep is the way in which we don't even, you know, so here I am as a child, like, taking in what it is to be a white American in this moment in history, but what it is is this relationship to a history of colonialism, a history of imperialism, a history of image making that I experience, you know, in the church in the basement of the church looking at this, you know, sort of religious colonialism. Um, and, and then, you know, the transgression of cinema. Oh, I wasn't, we weren't allowed to watch movies, but there were some Adventists who would like, I remember a VHS copy of Harold and Maude that got played and, you know, like, and my dad took me to the, my, you know, my dad was a transgressor also, and we went to the University of Washington to watch a film series from Australia, and I remember the first like we were, we like went into Mad Max, and and my mom was like we're out of here, and we left. But but then we went into the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, you know, where this Aboriginal man in the 19th century like kills these women with an these white you know women with an axe, and I remember my mom had left the cinema, and my dad and I were sort of in there, you know, um, and. The, somehow I convinced my dad to go see Young Frankenstein. So it was the first American movie that I saw in the cinema. So like to see that kind of transgressive humor, uh, I was just like, ah, I want more of this, right? Um, so, so cinema was always a place where I was getting access to some worlds I had not been allowed to see. And, and worlds that I, you know, there's a way in which it was supposed to be wrong. Um, so that attraction to, and, and you know, what was supposed to be right, like the vision of heaven that was being offered up to me was just this interminable, I just remember being like, it's gonna go on forever, and we have to wear white clothes all the time, and lay about and pet lambs and lions, and I'm just like, how is that gonna work? Why would I wanna be there? You know, like some of them are really struggling, but, but really wanting to be good. So all this is going on. Um, but then when I would see evidence of other fully formed worlds, I think what I was figuring out was I live inside of a crazy paradigm and I believe in it, but somewhere somebody else believes in another whole crazy paradigm. So definitely the first time I saw Usman Semben's work, I was like, what? There's a world where people are wearing crazy clothes and like, Everybody is like talking smart with each other and being hilarious and they're critiquing their politicians and you know all this stuff was going on and I was like, I was like how, 
who are those people? I want to know those people. Um, and, and so I had this crazy idea that I was going to go, this is the end of college, and I, I, so this is where, like, I wanted to be a painter is what I wanted to be. But I, I, I would sort of like paint all night because I needed to talk to people all day uh, and because I, I couldn't stand, you know, I needed in human interaction. Um, and I remember I did my senior show and somebody said, you know, why are you trying to paint? And I, and I, and I was like, well, I love, and they're like, well, it's not that your paintings are bad. And, and I was like, thank you. You know, you know, these moments where you take in criticism, you're like, uh-huh. And, but, but you know, my paintings had all, like, I was literally painting with tar and feathers to talk about racism. And I had words in my paintings and there was like, Velvet and all these crazy things, and um, they were very like ugly, beautiful, crammed with stuff, so much so you could barely see them. And this guy was like, you know, if you made movies, maybe there would be more room for all you're trying to talk about. Um, so that was like that hurt my feelings. So that was one, and then <laughs> it did, and then and then, but then the other was who do I want to talk to? And I remember really. Be a strong like feeling like I don't just want to talk to rich people. I don't want to just talk to people who collect art. I want to talk to and with the world. And what does what does the world care about? The world cares about cinema. Um, so that and then then I was like, okay, these sort of versions of the world that were so radically different. I saw in Semben's cinema, and then I saw uh, my Punaima, which is crazy town. Has, has everyone seen Bakunaima? One person, oh my God, go to the movies, people. This is like this great Brazilian, crazy radical film. Uh, and I saw that and I was just like, oh my God. Um, and it's this thing where adults become babies and wear babies' clothes and you know, it's like really out there. Um, and so I was like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to Brazil, I'm gonna go to West Africa, I'm gonna go to Paris, I'm gonna go to London. I'm gonna see all these different versions, and particularly versions of blackness. And that really mattered to me because in my childhood, there'd been this very weird thing that had happened where we had lots of African-American kids in our school, lots of Asian kids, lots of Latino kids, and we had one Ethiopian kid, and he and I were the smartest kids in the class, and always sort of in a battle for who would, um, and, and then at one point I heard my teacher saying to another teacher about black kids being stupid. And, and I was just like, I'm trying so hard to be Daniel Wasse, he's not stupid. Like what, like one more dissonance that didn't make sense to me. So I was like trying to understand like, where did Daniel Wasse come from? And how is he different than, what is the story of African Americans? Um, but then I you know, sort of didn't get this grant wasn't allowed to be paid to go to all these places, so I just bought a ticket for that bar and went and knocked on someone's door. Who was that? Who's that? And he asked me, how did you get here? <laughs> and I told him a story not unlike this one. Thank you. Tell him. <laughs> Can we have the third clip?
Waldo, que se ha that yes. it feels like there was a moment <laughs> in this great, successful, known camera person who was working on very important films that had an impact, that changed many people, and suddenly said, you know what, I think there's something nobody's getting. I think that there is something that I have a responsibility to tell, to relate, to talk about. It just feels like you said at some point, I'm sick. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think there is a way for me whenever I see, I mean, this is literally like one of the scenes in the film that I always laugh at um, because I, I, it, it holds, it holds, it holds, it holds so long and then finally Kathy releases this, I'm so sick of it. And, and I don't, you know, I mean, the way you are characterizing me is not a way that I feel about myself in any kind of way. Like I don't feel like, oh, I've had a long and successful career or that my films have made lots of impact. Like that, I'm those sorry, are, I'm sorry I cannot change that reality. Uh, well, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I continue to push back on that. Um, but, but it's definitely not the way I feel about myself. Um, because, you know, I think that this is one of the amazing things about cinema is that it gives in you this 
desire, you're, you're searching, you keep searching for some other gorgeous way to express things and, and you constantly sort of, you know, fail at it in different kinds of ways. Um, but that it, it reminds you of your, um, both of your smallness and your dreams of grandeur at the same time, all the time. So even if you are, you have got somehow gotten yourself to this incredible place. Um, you know, I was, I was remembering last night, um, uh, I guess it was two nights ago, I was with Bradford Young, who um, was in Poland and Bradford is about to do the new Star Wars movie and he was talking about like, how does that feel to be the DP of this? And I was talking about this moment of filming with Raul Peck where we were at the UN and we walked into this room full of African presidents and they all stood up to shake Raul's hand and Mugabe was like sort of reviled and standing in the corner by himself and then there were these six African presidents and Raul was introducing to me to other presidents and, and, and I, I had this moment of being like, how am I here? How is this happening? How can this be? And then all of a sudden, President Preval, the president of Haiti, had sort of been given the word in this context that his time was about to be over as president. And so here was this humil here was this man like sort of in the most powerful position he could be in and just given the knowledge that he was going to be losing it. And I I I was like I gotta, I gotta get this. Like, so I was like standing in this moment of shock of what am I doing here among all these presidents? And then Praval had this look on his face and he started to walk. And I just like beat it and got in front of him. And I could see all the UN security guards coming. And I just was like walking, weaving in the crowd, like avoiding the security guards. He was coming, coming until I got on the escalator right in front of him. And he was trapped and I was trapped there with him and no one could get at us and I went backwards down the escalator with him trying to hold his composure on his face but you could see that he did not have composure and and you know sort of got him out and, and I stood there and I was like how did I do that but the only reason I was in the room was because I had a camera and the only reason I was there was because a filmmaker who I respected, Raul, had gotten me in the room. And he was hoping for things from me. He was believing that I could capture the moment. So I did something that I would have never done, which is you know, get in the face of a president in his moment of greatest defeat and do it in such a way that no UN security guard could catch me. And, and so things like that, that you know, it's, it, you're, you're, you find yourself surprised to be in these moments, but you realize somehow someone believed you should be in this moment, and you have a camera in your hand. So you've gotta do something. So that's what it is. But, but in the doing that, you're thinking of all the other things you didn't get and how you didn't film in the room and how I didn't film Mugabe in the corner humiliated and, you know, because I saw all of that, and I was seeing something you can't imagine seeing. To see like, oh, it's not fun to be Mugabe when you're with all the other presidents. <laughs> that was wild to see, and I wish I could share that with all of you. I am now, but you know, like I wish that piece of footage existed, because then maybe we would have less corrupt leaders. Like if you really are a corrupt dictator asshole, like it's not so fun to be in the room with all the other presidents, or maybe it is, depending how many of them there are. <laughs> many. Many. It's, uh, I, I, I'm sure we can do this for hours and hours, but I would have to uh, ask you my last question and then take questions from, okay. from our wonderful friends now. Mm -hmm. um, and last, I want to say that uh, with a statement, a very artistic, pretty uncompromisingly artistic, like the one you made Canada first. Mm. I think, I believe that you are standing up for documentary filmmaking and documentary filmmakers. 
<laughs> so, camera persons first, absolutely, but also it is, it advocates us, generally speaking. We are Spartacus, yes, we are a family. Yes. This yes. tribe, family, nomadic, Bedouins, documentary filmmakers going around the world, falling into the uh, political and social yes. dilemmas of our own countries and around yes. us in the world. Many of us, yes. Ahmed is here. Yeah. Uh, many of us are um, taking risks, are facing difficulties, are <laughs> being harassed and yes. persecuted. persecuted. Yeah. Uh, and then we have to defend them. Yeah. We have to def we have to defend and to keep advocating the fact that what we do matters. Yeah. What we do is important. Yeah. It's not just light entertainment that you can work live without. Yes, it, yes. I think you're doing a lot in this sense. You've always been very engaged in advocating filmmakers and filmmaking. Right. What do you think it is that we can do today? Mm. I can talk to you. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, so, no, because it's like, you know, we found each other. We found each other through film. So we found each other, we met each other because Laura and I made the oath and we went to Abu Dhabi and I met you and it was very funny. Uh, Farwa had done this amazing panel where he just sort of threw down about what filmmakers needed to do in the Middle East. And later I met him at a party um, and I was just happy, to, you know, I really want to meet you. And he said, oh, I know you, You're, we're friends already. And I, and, I, and I said, I saw you in your long neck nodding in the audience. <laughs> and and, and we, we had already found each other. Um, and and then, you know, Orwa and Diana, his uh, fabulous partner, who is the filmmaker and producer, um, invited me to come to Damascus. And then I met Siam and so many other people uh, who then, you know, together we've gone into this moment of history of sort of from the moment where it felt like the Arab Spring to the moment we are in now, where your country has been in civil war for way too long. Um, and I, you know, so in that moment of time of like feeling like so much excitement with everyone, like I remember how excited Siam was that Mubarak had fallen and he was saying like the first time and like this person has been in power longer than my life. And it's the first time that I'm now imagining that something different is possible. And I remember that, like, like the energy and the joy in that moment in time. And then, you know, if we keep cutting to where we are in time, you know, among us was Fazl Al-Shadad, who we all loved, had this beautiful energy, went on a motorcycle ride across Asia, all the way to India and back to Syria, and then goes and films his own death. You know, he is shot by a sniper while filming, and we have the footage of his death. We have seen it. Um, to have lived through this moment of time and have it be <laughs> both so personal, you know, it's, you're my friends, and have it keep transforming in these ways where we are closer to the center of it than any of us ever expected to be and it matters more what we say than we ever thought it would. To speak publicly matters more than we ever thought it would. Um, I now feel very interconnected, uh, you know, and in the audience is Yi Chen, who's done an incredibly observational film in China, uh, you know, following on Nanfu Wang, who I was working with in the class that we all are in together, called Visual Thinking, where all of a sudden you have you know these young Chinese filmmakers taking risks that they in some ways understand in some ways don't understand. I feel like it was that way in Syria where everyone went out and took risks that they didn't totally understand the dimensions of. And you've got to tell me this. I was with Michael Moore after the election, uh, the night after the election, and I told him part of the story, and I want you to finish the story. So when when the war was starting in Syria, 
you and some other filmmakers reached out to me and said, you know, do you know any Americans who can speak publicly on behalf of the people who are rebelling against Assad? And I was like, well, I, I know Michael Moore. And so I reached out to Michael and I said, could you speak about this? It's better. Huh? It's better than that. Yeah, yeah. You forgot something. Tell me. I we always asked, forget. We asked you uh, to ask Michael for his signature. Oh. On, a, on yeah. an international call for human rights in Syria. Oh, is that what you asked Yes. And then <laughs> he returned to me saying, Michael says hi, he's mm -hmm. signing, mm -hmm. but he also wants you to, wants to ask you, what could he do more? Yeah. And that, from Michael, was one of the dearest things that anybody did. And uh, he was the very first filmmaker to make a video in support. And that was our idea, Anstin. And you were very kind. You went to yeah, well, meet I Michael mean, with your camera, yeah. and you filmed him well, make a wonderful was, statement. I mean, and this is to, like, so one, that question, what can we do more? Like, how do we ask, how do we keep asking that question of all of ourselves? But, you know, uh, Michael literally said to me, well, I have to, I'm on my way between two things. I'm going to be in a taxi. I'm going to stop at Broadway and 83rd Street, and I'll get out there at this time. If you are there with the camera, you can film me. And that's what happened. I was there on the corner and, like, in front of, like, a baby gap, and I filmed him. I, I was kind of slack-jawed when he started talking because it was – early and he knew a lot about Syria and he spoke very eloquently. But then when I told him what had happened to the clip and where it had gone, uh, he asked me a couple of nights ago, he said, tell me it's okay that I did that. Because I think, you know, in many ways he encouraged you. And uh, I think he was wondering, and I think this is the thing we all wonder in these moments of like, we make these strong gestures, we say these strong things in, in moments in, of time that feel as vital as this particular moment feels right now. Um, and then we don't know what becomes of them. Uh, so, I mean, I'm curious, so I can take the message back to Michael in terms of what that clip did in the world. It did very good. <laughs> it absolutely did. It was very deep. Yes, as you said, the question of Michael um, should be, in many ways, uh, the main question. What can we do more? Yeah. Uh, it takes generosity, for sure. But I think that's the core of, of the answer. Right. Yeah, and I would say like that. that's absolutely the question that I am saying. I think a couple of my, you know, Sandy Dabowski is saying, you know, I'm practicing radical optimism. Is, is that's what I'm up to, right? And, and, the, and the creation of connections um, between those of us who already have cameras and, and addressing and acknowledging that everyone is us with a camera. We all, we all have the capacity to speak and communicate now. So how do we do that? What does that mean? Um, and I do know that right now um, that uh, Laura and people at Field Division are working really hard to create a protocol around um, encryption and the way that we should be all rethinking the way we're using our digital communications. And you know, I like look at me. I still don't communicate encrypted in any way because it's like too much trouble. Uh, so I'm not, you know. I, I, I live in a glass house. It's really, the light gets in here all the time. Um, and, you know, and I think there's some part of me, I, I'm ready to be seen on all levels. You can write whatever file on me you want to write. You can read all my communications. You can see what I read. You can see the people I talk to. You can, you know, yes. The, the Syrians who are my best friends, yes, you know, I will say all of those things publicly, um, but I do think there are those of us who are uh, working and talking and doing things that need to be private for a period of time before they can be public, and so um, pay attention for those protocols coming. There's also a new effort to pr pressure all of the camera companies to get encryption into cameras 
because cameras are not encrypted so that whatever we film um, can be sort of harvested in a middle period between uh, when our data gets taken out of them and put other places. So, so know that, yes, there's so many wonderful ways in which we, you know, this, this, uh, so this petition that uh, yeah, gives the Electronic us Freedom Foundation uh, is, is now circulating yeah. uh, and, and together with KG, I'm inviting everyone to check it online and to join this yes, uh, request. EFF, it's yeah. open for signatures. Yeah, yeah, and that's going to come up soon. And I, and I do think we have people at Sony who are starting to respond to that pressure. But I can tell you, I mean, so I was in New York at, at Doc NYC at this you know, luncheon and every single documentary filmmaker got up and spoke very publicly about the critical political period that we are in post the American election. Um, and <coughs> then I went to the Governor's Awards in LA and you know, it was a private event and nobody said anything. You know, the sort of Hollywood image makers of the world did not say a word. Um, Don Cheadle vaguely mentioned empathy and the lack of empathy. And then I was at the- That's encrypted. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that was coded what he was saying. And then I um, just was at Camera Image in Poland where there were really like the great working cinematographers of the world. And it was as if no acknowledgement, no public acknowledgement that as image makers, we're the ones who, you know, we create the image of who is the enemy. We create the image of what is beauty. We create the, you know, so we have created this world in which for some reason we're putting white American people in close-ups and the rest of the world is behind. That is the world that world of cinematographers is creating. And Bradford Young, um, who I mentioned earlier, he was the only person who stood up publicly and spoke, you know, we, our images are, are, they come from the history of the military, of colonization, of imperialism, of missionaryism. You know, that's what, that's what imagery has been, and I think documentary filmmakers have often been, you know, in complete, like, skipping through the fields <laughs> with the, those perpetrators in certain ways. And even when we're trying to do work that's doing good, I still feel like it's in that category of missionaryism in terms of the way people are represented. Um, so, so for me, like constantly questioning what is our capacity to, to change what is our, the way we film. How many people have seen Battle of Algiers recently? See it again. See it again and rethink cinema language. Like people have done it before us. So yeah, that's what I'm, I guess I think, you know, looking more critically at what our history of image making is, questioning what images we can be making now, and then um, enjoying the family of us, enjoying the family of us who cares about these things and are struggling, you know, in these mighty ways. I, I do feel like, um, it looks like my um, But you know, if you look at, how many of you seen Return to Homes? You know, I, I don't think a film like that hasn't existed in history until that moment because you have experienced documentary filmmakers, you have gear with battery life that can exist in the middle of a battle that goes on and on and on and on and on. And so suddenly you have a new form. And that's what we're in the middle of. We have all of these new tools and people who are inside the situation who can film. Um, but, and also we have this incredible political pressure that now understands the meaning of those images getting out and is pushing back against us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. It's, uh, it's always wonderful to listen to you. And uh, I'm don't you love the pace at which you speak that? It makes me want to slow down. <laughs> Leaving the House is Ezra Edelman, who made this incredible film uh, 
anyone has any thoughts or questions, this is the time. Go ahead. The microphone is coming your way. Uh, I was just curious about the editing process you went through with camera person. Uh, I figured you had a lot of footage. And how was it? How long was how long was it? And how long did you yeah. take to do it? So, so you got to come tonight. Can you come tonight to the conversation with Nell Feinberger and I? Because we're going to talk all about it. Okay. It's going to yeah. be an hour about answering your questions. Yeah, yeah. It's going to take us an hour to answer that question. Go. Yeah. Go. Watching camera person, you feel like it wasn't made by you. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think I, it, it's a it's a very true feeling. Um, I don't recognize it uh, because it it helps me see things that I couldn't see. So I think that it's, it's as if looking into blind spots of my own. Um, and I know that my impulse a lot of the time in the edit room was to do certain juxtapositions or, or, or put things next to each other. But you know, when I had the initial set of conversations with Nels that made me want to work with him, uh, what became very clear to me was what he was saying to me is what I say to directors, which is that I, please help me understand all that you want, all that you question, and then let me do my work. And that's what happened with Nels and I, and he did his work with the footage, and it is nothing like what I would have done with the footage, literally like, so radically different uh, and so revelatory to me that I was able to let go of the desire for control that I had you know, had in the edit room for so long uh, with uh, the other editor, Amanda Laws, who really helped me be brave. And I, you know, earlier when we were watching, uh, uh, the sort of when we were looking at the religious section, I was remembering the first time I ever spoke publicly about being a Seventh-day Adventist was in one of these kind of story hours, like a moth-like thing in New York. And it was probably about 10 years ago. And I had a panic attack after walking out because I had this feeling of um, they're going to know what I said about them. And, and I remember thinking, like, will they be able to find it on the internet? And, and, and the level at which my mind was colonized by the religious ideology in which I was brought up was pretty complete. And, 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 and this is why I'm so interested in you know, sort of the religious forces around the world and how powerful they are, because I know it took me a good 35 years to shake off. You know, I consciously stopped believing at one point but the, the, the way in which it surveilled my mind has taken me a very long time to shake off. Um, and so, you know, to get to the place where I could make this film and speak this way has been a really hard and strange journey. And um, I, I really love, uh, I really love the film and I really love that it is Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Keiji. Yeah. I hope you